So for the next few sessions, we'll see how it goes, but I'd like to take as a central theme the um, teaching called Dependent Arising or Codependent Arising or the steps of codependent arising, paticca samupada. And this is um, quite an elaborate teaching, but actually it's a presentation of how elaborate we are. <laughs> it's not the teaching is elaborate, it's we are very elaborate. <laughs> and the Buddha is just tracking the underlying threads of the tangle that we call ourselves, because we're a tangled skein. You know what a skein is? A skein is a thread of wool when it's all twisted up. When you get a, a thread of wool and you twist it, it seems like a solid thing. Yeah. So it says this generation has become like a tangled skein. Instead of being a simple thread, you can see the beginning and end, it's all twisted up into a knot. And that knot seems to be me, and it's very stuck we experience is dark so he's tracing he said you can unpick this this tangled skein naturally the language of it is somewhat um, uh, different from our normal mode of expression and that can be a problem so we're going to take a, a little bit at a time and try to untangle the thread but I'd like to just begin um, recognizing how this, um, you know, one of the fundamental um, visions or, or realizations that many of the disciples had when they heard the teachings of any of it really, Four Noble Truths or Dependent Origination, they recognize all, oh, everything arises and passes all things of the nature to rise and pass away. Yeah. And, but there's no, no person in there, it's just conditions that arise and pass. And a particular uh, significant presentation of that was this um, stanza that one of the arahants uh, uttered to the two um, disciples, before they were disciples, they were seekers, spiritual seekers, Sariputta and Moggallana, were in search of the deathless. And they were, had various teachers. And then one day, they, this person, this bhikkhu, came along. And thought, this is an interesting looking fellow because his, his countenance, his faculty is very serene and bright. His deportment is composed. This speaks of something. They obviously saw something about this person. So they went and asked him, or Moggallana went and asked him, what's your teaching and who's your teacher? And, you know, how did you get in that state? And Asaji, the Arahant, who was one of the first of the Arahants, he was one of the group of five, he says, well, you know, I can't really explain it very thoroughly because I'm quite new at this, even though he's an Arahant. <laughs> He didn't necessarily have the teaching capacities and so he said, but the gist of it is, and he gave this expression, he tupaba dhamma, te sang 
neuro uh, te sang uh, hetung tatagata aha. Te sanchi yoni rodo evang madi mahasamano. Which means, basically, yeah, the uh, all, all conditions, all, all forms, all dhammas, all appearances, all manifestations uh, that arise from a root cause. The Buddha, the Tathagata, has taught, has seen that root cause. He has also seen how that ends, or that comes, that root cause is removed. This is the teaching of the great Samana. When they heard this, ah, this is, this is, this is the key. They obviously got this is the key. And essentially, you got this word hetu, which means root cause arising, you know, samudayo, and uh, and niroda ceasing. The root cause of dhammas. And what are dhammas? You know, dhammas are those uh, uh, that direct experience that happens to us. That moment when something touches us, we go ah. Oh, it could be a thought, it could be an impression. Um, it's something that where immediately we get any something happens and we we get it as a dhamma. Mm. Sometimes talked about a phenomenal or mental object, but it's not just the thought, it's that that experience like a flash of light when something touches you, and you go, oh. And then when that touches you, you start to respond. Right? Something touches you. And you respond, you feel activated, stimulated, excited, or displeased, or whatever. That's a dhamma. It could be subtle, it could be gross. So that mm -hmm. something generates that. Everything that, that comes from something is causing it to happen. And if that cause is removed, then the dhammas begin to dissolve. And in fact, we are then calm, serene, we're not being activated not being stimulated, not being excited, not being depressed, not concerned about the future, not concerned about the past. It's just stillness. And so when they heard this, they thought, this is definitely profound. And who's your teacher? Oh, the great Samana Gautama. He's my teacher. We go and see him. They went to see him, said, please take us on as your disciples. It was that profound. And this uh, this little verse, which you probably won't find because it's actually buried in the books of the Vinaya, which is associated with monastic discipline, but it's often inscribed on stupas, on chedis, on statues, on slabs, on steels, on stones, spread all over Southeast Asia. They keep digging them up. This is like someone, this is the Buddha Dharma. You know, people obviously carve this recognizing as long as this is around, then the Buddha Dhamma is preserved. We can't get all of it down on stone. If we get this down, then we've kept, we've managed to hold and transmit the essence of the Buddha Dhamma. It was considered that crucial. Yeah. So, mm, and so then, you know, it's hate to cause uh, means things are caused, things are originated, and this is where it links up to dependent arising things things arise from causes and this is the exciting thing about this is that 
nothing is actually fixed if the causes are changed experience changes if the causes are eliminated that experience disappears so the gateway is open we can stay stuck in ourselves or we can recognize everything that builds up this sense of myself as a historical entity as a whatever i think myself as being all that is caused and it can be dissolved and that dissolution will not mean a kind of a, a like a blank nihilism but a sense of i'm free there is freedom from the condition the caused yeah. and because it's caused if one understands the root cause then we also have the potential to uh, dismantle or disengage from the root cause which is summed up in the four noble truths as craving and craving says a very strong word most people don't probably experience themselves as craving very much you know maybe if i'm really hungry i might crave a meal but most of the time i don't feel i'm craving it's subtle and it's buried in the tangle and the different aspects of craving craving for sense contact the stimulation that arises from sense contact which we may not experience very much because we're getting it we're getting sights and sounds we're getting our food we're getting our drink we're getting you know so you know and it but all that switches off we may start to feel rather restless and then we start fantasizing or thinking about something so our craving then goes into stimulating thoughts of what i could do or should do or will happen to me so I'm, and then what actually is being craved what is being craved is certainty mm. certainty uh, is being craved i like to feel certain about who i am certain about how she feels about me certain about the future certain about the past yeah uh, <laughs> and that there's a strong craving there that craving acts like the nuclear force within that within an atom it's binding everything together mm. and this craving then feeds consciousness so it means uh, consciousness is then in uh, acts as the seed and craving is considered to be the juice or the sap that feeds the seed and one teaching says when there is craving a uh, consciousness arising in the field of karma with craving as, as the juice there is the experience of becoming again this may seem rather mysterious what am i talking about simple example karma means the cause and effect process you know what i'm acting what i how i act what i seek my ongoing ideas and what i want in the future it's also what i inherit the sense of i've been this this is what's happened to me i am this kind of person 
there's a huge karmic profile that we have. Most of us probably recognize we have karmic profile that's generated through our family relationships. I experienced myself this way because of the way I was in my family, yeah, or in my partnerships, or with my children, or in, we might have several. When I'm in my work, then my karmic thing is I am the boss, or I'm the secretary. When I'm the boss or the secretary, I want to be the good boss, the good secretary who gets it right. So there's a certain anxiety about getting it wrong. And therefore, there's craving to be solid and certain within that karmic configuration. You see what I mean? Hmm. Yeah. So if I say if I was in a monastery and I was, say, trying to be the best monk, I see I, I experience myself in a monastery then I might be craving to get more attention or to be the best, strongest monk or the, one of the best samadhi or the one who can live most simply and there be the craving to become this good monk. Mm. Yeah. And that would be my craving. And I'd be very instinctively concerned that that craving be fulfilled. Mm. Uh, you know, to the point in which somebody said, well, you're not much good, I'd feel really upset. Or they might think, well, you're not bad, but he's much better than you are. <laughs> then I might feel upset. <laughs> Same as if, you know, you're the boss or the secretary and somebody says, well, yeah, you're not bad, I suppose, but she's a lot better than you are. Uh, you don't do very well, then you feel very upset because your identity, your what you've become, has not been satisfactory uh, you know solid uh, and and you can feel very confident in you feel it's not fulfilled yet and this is craving occurring within the field of karma and consciousness acts as the seed something in us places our intelligence within a field that's that's configured by sights, sounds, and mental dispositions, the attributes of consciousness. Now, you know, of which the most powerful, of course, is the mental one. I think myself to be. I think myself to be the secretary, the abbot, whatever, you know. That's what I, I'm, so my thinking mind defines me as that. That's what I define myself as in this particular situation. Yeah. And that's called mental consciousness. Now, mental consciousness infected by craving gives rise to the sense of this person who is the boss, the secretary, the abbot, the teacher. Yeah. And the entire message of craving within consciousness is make me solid, make me secure, make me comfortable, make me free from any distress. I mean, it's, it's an unconscious, not verbal reflex. But you notice when you, when you seem to make a mistake, you feel very critical. Or when people don't trust you or don't give you the positive feedback, you feel insulted or disappointed or you worry about yourself. We create a self-image. And that creating a self-image is called becoming. Again, these words are not that easy, but in the Pali language, the word is bhava. Mm. 
bhava, B-H-A-V-A, bhava. And um, bhava, so sometimes related to existing or existence, it means the forming of an ongoing entity, the forming of a historical personality. I was this, I am this, I will be this. Hmm? That that forms that, that profile is called bhava. Yeah? And it's fed by tanha, craving to arrive at a solid, distinct, satisfactory entity. And as you probably recognize, it doesn't happen. <laughs> you don't actually get there. Or, you know, if you do get there for a moment, then you've got to keep it going for tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. And you recognize sooner or later, as you age and decline, you're not going to be able to do it. Then you feel death is a failure. You know, you you, you kind of... And this bhava is, is the agent, the conditioning force for what's called birth. So it shapes us up and then we take on an identity. This is me. Now that is called birth. We may think birth is just the one occasion when we arise within a womb or leave a womb, but that's, yeah, that's true. But actually more significant for us is the fact that every day we're being born into an identity. When you wake up in the morning, probably first second or two, you don't have an identity yet. You're just in this state of oh, what's happening, and then oh, it's eight o'clock, it's seven o'clock, it's up, right? And the identity starts to form. Yeah, when you're very small, though, you don't remember this. When you're very small, newborn, you don't have much of an identity. You just have awareness of sights and sounds and touches, and it's very vulnerable. And uh, you know, you look around, what's happening? You recognize warmth, friendship, nourishment. Ah, and you start to establish yourself as a distinct person. But that takes many years to happen. But the psychological becoming is something that we engender moment by moment and day by day. Whenever that is interrupted, we can't become what we want to become. We can't become what we should become. We can't become what we think other people want us to become. Or we worry about what we were in the past, what we have become. We feel guilty about what we were, what we, ha what we had become. Yeah. Or criticize others for how we were or have become. <laughs> and then we hope we will become something else in the future. What's happening? Becoming is happening. Now, you don't actually know what the future will be. You can't really say you can be absolutely clear about the past. You have certain memories. What you can be clear about is becoming. That's the seed. And it's taking its nourishment from craving, the wish to become, and also planted within the field of karma cause and effect 
within the field of events that have happened to me, events that are remembered, events that have consequences. So that seed has been planted in a very rich field where dhammas have been activated. And there are consequences. Now, for example, if we consider, you know, your life, maybe you, I don't know, you're 30 or 40 or 50 or 60, how much do you remember of that? What do you remember? Washing your hair? Probably not. Yeah. Sweeping the floor? Probably not. What do you remember? You remember the painful bits and the pleasant bits and the bits that were really stimulating and the tragedies and the joys and the love and the, and the aversion. You remember the poignant bits, right? The striking bits. You remember the dumbers that created significant shifts for you. You were deeply moved. You were affected. You were made happy. You were encouraged. You were blamed. So you remember those. Who you were in the past is then really the profile of the of the dhammas that occurred in your karmic field. Okay? So on account of those encouragements and disappointments and and mistakes and pains and joys, because of those, one's one's attention has been one's becoming has been steered in a particular way. Because I was not allowed to do this and I was I was blamed about doing that, I did I did this instead. Yeah. Or I found I was in conflict. I now remember this person I'm in conflict with. So, and this then becomes myself with the memories. And with a bit of understanding, you recognize, no, it's not that those didn't occur, but a lot of other things occurred I don't even remember. So how true is this as a presentation of myself? If it's only describing 5%, of the events, 2% of the events that happened, it's not a very good picture, is it, of a self? It's a picture of karma. Definitely it's something you want to attend to, but not to become, not to fascinate with it, not to anguish about it, not to wish for it again but to have learnt this was skillful this was unskillful this is something to let go of release that and then instead of carrying forth more karma that is the actions that i'm doing are there i mean trying to act in order to perpetuate myself which itself is a kind of mirage could it be the actions can, uh, that I undertake, that get undertaken, are leading out of karma? 
not acting upon old historical impulses, not acting upon historical memories, not acting upon some personal profile, but just turning towards where is the truth, where is the good, where is the beautiful, where is the loving. Mm. And we turn towards that, what is true, what is generous, what is loving, what is honest. There's no self in that. It's not that yours is any better or worse than mine. It's not, it's not owned by anybody. You know? So these dhammas are the dhammas that lead to awakening. And so you turn that way. Now, when consciousness is affected by ignorance, unknowing, then this process of tanha activates. The activation is called sankara. It forms, it activates. It activates consciousness. Consciousness gets stimulated into what does consciousness do? And this term itself is a little bit, um, say, controversial, but described in different ways. And you hear many teachers, some teachers saying consciousness is is uh, awakened or aim to have awakened consciousness or consciousness is the supreme. Um, but, <laughs> uh, but I think, but in the, the Buddha was very adamant in his term using the word consciousness. He said, we look at the Pali word vinyana. And he said, vinyana is a problem. Uh, it's problematic because vinyana is that which continually presents thoughts, sights, sounds. It's continually feeding sights and sounds, touches, impressions. That's vinyana. And as it does so, it generate it both generates particular objects that we see or hear or touch, and it generates somebody who sees and hears and touches them or is touched by them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the way this operates and why it operates, consciousness, the vinyana, essentially it's not aimed at, at uh, presenting you with actual truth. That's not its aim. The aim of consciousness is to to present a particular set of experiences that you can relate to, so you can feel solid. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> how does this operate? So we have visual consciousness. Visual consciousness just sees, sees light different degrees of light yeah and so then i am the seer the one who sees now what happens is that the mental consciousness then supervises that and say well no look at that particular object there and it narrows down to a particular focus so then we see the door or the face or the button 
or the screen or the clock. That. So mental consciousness then formulates consciousness into a very object-defining mode. And when it does so, the rest of the visual field disappears or blurs out. Okay? Does that make sense to you? Do you agree with it? <laughs> so it's not presenting you with, it's presenting you with only certain things. And why those things? Why does it present you with the door? Because you want to get out. <laughs> Why does it present you with the clock? Because you want to know what time it is. Why does it present you with the button? Because you want to switch something on. Right? So there's an intention there that's pushing to find something that fulfills your wishes. Right? Or make sure everything's okay. The door's locked. I'm fine. I'm safe. Clock is fine. I'm not late. Okay, I'm safe. It supports your wishes, so it's providing you with pieces of information that supports your wishes. It's not telling you the truth. It's telling the truth you want to hear. (laughs) Why do you want to hear that? Because you want to feel comfortable and steady. Do you think these things will do it for you? They won't, will they? The clock, the door, the button is not going to make you... It's going to make you feel safe for about two seconds. Comfortable for two seconds. You know you're not late, that's okay. And then, oh, have I forgotten to switch that off? The next thing comes up. So then you go into the mind consciousness... Let me think. So you go there. Make sure everything's okay. So it moves around. And consciousness is presenting particular pieces of information to make you feel solid, safe, secure. That's not bad. It just doesn't work. (laughs) You could spend a lot of time, a lot of energy in following that message. If I have one of these, if I get an insurance policy, if I have that health security, if I have that, if I have this and that, then I'll feel okay. You won't. You want something else. It's, it doesn't work. And you become the busy person seeking your wishes, seeking fulfillment. That's what you become. You get shaped into a desire form. You start with desire, craving, you put it into consciousness, conscious presents objects that fascinate, that attract, that activate. You follow that as karma and you become that person. And that person is an illusion and it's never satisfied. So mind consciousness supervises the other consciousnesses. So, for example, if we're touching, most of the time we're probably not aware of 
skin at all, maybe just the feet on the floor or the hands touching something. So you only get a little bit, just that which is necessary to fulfill your wishes. And then in that, we miss 85% of the rest of it. Right? And the more you get embedded in your wishes, which cannot be fulfilled, the more you lose the big picture, which is changing. And the challenging thing is to recognize that in that big picture of things that are not sure, not certain, where I don't become, I can't become what I wish, if I'm st stabilized by the body, that's okay. That's okay. I'm not that. I don't need to be that. What a relief. So this is like all of the Buddha's teaching, he only presents a problem if there's a solution to it. So this dependent arising isn't supposed to be a kind of a, a final um, wretched statement, but there's arising and there's also passing the niroda. And the niroda is when, when we're no longer fascinated by thoughts, sights, sounds, touches, we no longer expect them to be fulfilling, satisfying, when we're not believing in the self-images, the ideas and the memories we have, when we're no longer fighting against and resisting and having aversion, which is the contradictory craving, I don't want to be that. We're fighting to get rid of our memories, which is another form of craving. Yeah. If, if all that action can cease, if, we, if the mind can be encouraged to stop creating all this stuff, if consciousness can cease creating all this stuff, there's the possibility for peace and freedom. Mm. And uh, that's the presentation. And uh, it's not... Um, so the Buddha's gone into it in some depth... And as we look into this more fully, we can begin to recognize it very clearly the Buddha is presenting, okay, well, look at look at that particular detail. Notice that's how it's formed. Notice that particular piece. So you can, you can get attention to particular knots in this skein that you can, oh, that, you can get some angles on. Mm -hmm. But for now, recognize consciousness is what? Now, in this sense, the, the original sense, or the way it's originally poised, consciousness is not chitta, some kind of awareness, which we call awareness, right? Because you can be aware of consciousness. You can notice you're seeing, you can be aware of that. But that awareness is not vijnana, that's chitta. Vijnana is always presenting objects that stimulate stir and and 
it's always seeking to be stirred and it generates a world that involves us that we feel we belong to that we feel we have to make a way in that we feel we have to become somebody in and what would become in that is aging sickness death and suffering and there's a way out so contemplate whatever arises passes uh, the sense of identity particularly we can be quite dispassionate about sights and sounds but notice particularly the inner functioning of consciousness the consciousness that's generating me through thoughts and memories and perceptions and it can be extremely tangled extremely provocative extremely dense this is where we need some support to release these bonds of craving but that support will come from every time there's a degree of neuroda as an arising of awareness and that's that's the transmutation that's the transmission that's the process they're encouraged to participate in so that's certainly enough for now it may be quite a lot um, but uh, reflect upon it and uh, we'll continue this exploration another time